As I pushed through the heaving crowd of teenage boys, I felt their hands claw and lash out at me with an unbridled hatred. There was a crushing blow to my lower spine. My head jerked backwards as another punch landed on my temple, hard. A wad of thick spit slid down the side of my face. The mob pushed and pulled at my body until it seemed my arms might tear off, my shirt straining at the seams. Dirty fucking faggot, someone screamed. You're going to die, Pufta, yelled another. The volume of their jeers was deafening. I couldn't blink, my eyes frozen wide in terror. My vision grew cloudy, my legs shook. I willed myself to just keep walking, to push forward, to make it to the bus stop at the front gate of school. And I begged myself not to let them see me cry, not to give them the satisfaction. When I finally got there, I began to do the cold calculations. It would be a few minutes wait for the rickety old bus and a 15-minute journey home, followed by a four-minute walk up our steep, dusty driveway. In total, I just had to keep my shit together for 20 more minutes. Then I could kill myself. Then my whole miserable existence would finally be over. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast, sponsored by Pantera Press. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Welcome back to Good Reading Magazine. I'm Max Lewis, and today we're joined by author and journalist Shannon Malloy, whose debut book, 14, is a memoir about his time growing up as a gay man in regional Queensland. Shannon, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So you've previously written about your experiences being bullied in high school and experiences of homophobia in a few articles. What made you want to adapt that into a full memoir? I think it was probably almost four years ago to the day that I wrote about myself and my experience at school for the very first time. And it was sort of inspired around the really awful debate about the Safe Schools program. Um, I remember I was coming home from work one day on the train, just flicking through the news, and I saw this story about an MP standing up in Parliament comparing Safe Schools to a way for pedophiles to groom children. And I was just... I was sort of outraged, but then just incredibly sad. Yeah. And I remember thinking, if this is how I feel as a 30-something gay man who has enormous privilege in my life, being able to choose where I live and who I associate with, mm. imagine what 14-year-old me would have felt like um, hearing an elected official stand up in parliament, this hallowed place, mm. and compare who I am to a pedophile. Uh, And so I went home and and wrote a pretty impassioned uh, piece about my experience at school uh, without even really thinking about it. Mm. And the response to that was incredible. So many people uh, offering beautiful support and words of encouragement. Um, But the thing that really touched me was the men who reached out who had experienced something similar and the kids who contacted me who were still experiencing that same sort of horrific um, bullying that I had experienced that I'd written about in this piece. Um, And then unfortunately, the thing that touched me the most was the parents of boys who hadn't survived like I had. Um, And so eventually over time, I realised there was power in telling a story like that. 
um, because things haven't really changed. They've changed a little for the better, but kids are still experiencing the same awful stuff that I experienced. Mm. And so I wanted to write a book for them and for their parents and for the people who love them and for people who experienced what I experienced and for teachers and, you know, anyone, brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles. And for anyone who's read the book, it does deal with a very traumatic year in your life, one that probably most people have gone through something similar, wouldn't really want to return to. What was it like returning <laughs> to that time in the process of writing the book? How did you, how did you cope with that? It was <laughs> uh, wine. No, um, <laughs> it, was, it was a pretty interesting experience. Um, a lot of the stories that are in this book about my 14th year of life, I hadn't really told anyone before. I'd, I'd told snippets to my husband or a couple of anecdotes to my mum and my siblings, but not the sort of full picture of, of just how brutal that year was. Um, and so saying it out loud and, and going back to that time was, there were times that, that were pretty horrific and I had to sort of go for a long walk around the block or cuddle the cat for an hour or two. <laughs> um, so it wasn't an easy process. But then at the end of it, it sort of felt like in a way I'd put it down finally after all these years. So it was it was a sort of cathartic process as well. And in terms of other um, similar books of this nature, the book's been compared a bit to Holding the Man. Was that an inspiration? Um, that's a very generous comparison. Um, I hope it lives up to just one-tenth mm. uh, or even one one-hundredth of that significance. Yeah. They're enormous shoes to fill. I think that, comparis that comparison sort of relates to it being a kind of coming-of-age story. Mm. Um, the story is about the bullying and the discrimination uh, and the violence, but it's also a lot about me trying to figure out who I am. Um, it was a very uncertain world, sort of pre- uh, I guess popular internet, you know, there was internet, but it was pretty primitive in its form. There were no gay people on television or yeah. in films. Um, there was no reference point for me. And so I sort of felt like the life that I was living was the life that I would always live mm. um, anywhere in the world, regardless of what I did. And that terrified me. So the story is sort of, I think, much like holding the man is figuring out who you are, mm. um, rolling with some pretty hefty punches um, and sort of trying to make the best of things and also be happy. It's a pursuit, it's the pursuit of happiness, this yeah. book as well. Well, you talking about the, the media that you had as a kid, which didn't really feature gay people at all, um, leads me to my next question was the book deals with taking place at the turn of the millennium. Um, there wasn't a lot of great media representation of queer people if there was media representation. You talk about how um, the first coming out you saw on TV was Ellen DeGeneres and how yeah. she was pretty much vilified for yeah. it. Um, and you also mentioned that the first movie you saw, which had a gay man in it, was Philadelphia, yes. if I'm not mistaken, and how that is about a man dying of AIDS. Um, so not the best representation. I was curious what the first positive representation of gay people or gay men in the media you saw was, either books, TV, anything, if you can remember what it was. That is an incredible question. Um do you know, I've not even really thought about it. I think it would probably be maybe something like Queer as Folk, um, which was much later. I was probably 16 yeah. or 17. Um, that was a very 
kind of colourful look at, at the lives of gay men. Um, but probably, I guess, the mainstream uh, positive view might have been Will and Grace. Oh, um, yeah, I didn't think about that because that would have yeah. been just after. Yeah, that probably time. just after. Yeah. I, I'm not sure if it was sort of on at a primetime slot at yeah. first in Australia. Um, but I remember watching that and it was about gay men who, you know, want to be happy and mm. love and live life without apology and go about their sort of daily life. And they were all things that I didn't know if they would be possible for mm. me. You know, I, I write in the book about being terrified that I might be fired if if anyone found out I was yeah. gay and having to mute myself. Um, and that sounds ridiculous now sitting in 2020, but, but back then, and it's not that long ago, mm. um, I'm sure I wasn't the only one feeling that way. I know I wasn't from speaking to, to men of a similar age to me and women. Um, and so... Yeah, I d- there weren't many positive representations and, and Will and Grace was a pretty... Uh, it's not necessarily reflective, particularly the ability to live in an apartment that beautiful oh, in yeah. New York. But <laughs> but it was... I don't know, it was just nice. Yeah, I guess it was nice to have a show that presented a positive, like, normal... It just, so it showed that gay men were normal. Yeah. They weren't just, like... They were Wasn't like this thing to be they terrified life, of. You know, they went to work, all that stuff. And it also didn't, you know, have them die or anything. Like yes. That. Yeah. And Philadelphia is a really important story to Absolutely. be told yeah. about a about a, a remarkable time in history. Um, but but it's it's based on a true story. And um, and what he experienced was he lost his job. He was ostracized by friends and family and the ones that that he retained as friends slowly died around him. And, and I think I was probably seven or something when I watched that with my mum sitting at the end of her bed, you know, yeah. just absolutely terrified. Seven-year-old, yeah. Terrified. Well, dialing into the book a little bit, um, one of the things that keeps you going in the book is your strong group of, of female friends. I was wondering if you kept in touch with them after the time of the book at all if you still keep in contact with them yes so Morgan who is kind of my best mate in the book we um, are still friends and we still talk I spoke to her just the other day Um, she's very excited about um, the book and she's coming to a little party that I'm having in Brisbane um, to launch it which is amazing Uh, and we over the sort of past year or so uh, for inspiration I reached out to a number of people from that time and asked them for photos of, mm. of me and us and of various different things just to sort of take me back to the colour of that period. Um, and so it's been a, it's kind of reconnected us in a, in a stronger way, which mm. is really lovely. Um, a couple of the other girls in the book I've completely lost touch with um, and they're not on Facebook, which is baffling That's to me. For people of your I know, not on Instagram either. Mm. Um, but it could be that they're married and have different yeah. names now. Um, but it's the sad reality is that as soon as I could, I got out of Central Queensland mm. and and I don't go back a great deal, and I never go back to Yapoon, which is my hometown where the book is set. Um, no one's there anymore, kind of thankfully, <laughs> uh, and so there's no reason to. And the last time that you did go back, did it cha- had it changed at all? Um, it's hard to say because I kind of didn't leave my mum's house, mm. um, and it's um, I'm actually getting a little emotional thinking about this aspect of it. But I think I was probably 25 and. I'd been working for a number of years. I was in a relationship. I'd just bought my first house. I had great friends in Brisbane, was living a great life. 
but then still felt the same terror that I felt at yeah. 14 walking back into that town. Um, and so I didn't want to even run into the shop and get milk for mum. I sort of cowered in the car and, and made her go in. Um, and so I don't really know. Um, I hope it has. And I hear that it's kind of a, a bit more of a cosmopolitan town now. Mm. Uh, and so I hope for, for kids like me that are there now um, that it has changed. Um, and I'm, I'm, despite how wonderful my life is now, I'm probably still not strong enough to go mm. back and find out. Well, that was kind of my my next question. Do you know what happened to some of the other people and figures in the book, like like Tom or Jonathan? Do you know what happened to them? Every now and then I see a couple of people from the book pop up in someone's photo on Facebook or something like that. Uh, and there's been, you know, a school reunion of my age group since then. And so occasionally I'll see, you know, photos of someone and it's really strange to see them in an adult context, Mm. uh, which is such a disconnect from who we were as kids. And I know a couple of them now, I've heard that they're they're good blokes and that they've probably changed from who they were as kids. And in fact, one guy, he doesn't feature in the book because he wasn't the worst of, of my bullies, but he used to give me a fair amount of grief, reached out to me probably almost a decade ago now. Um, to apologise and to tell me that he's now gay. Oh. Uh, and then that, you know, he's he's done a lot of soul searching and that that's probably what yeah. drove a lot of his his sort of homophobic bullying of me was, was his deep insecurity about himself. Um, and so that was kind of nice. And I see him, he's very prominent in the community now and I see him a lot. Um, and it's, it's still a bit strange, mm-hmm. um, but it's seeing him live a really beautiful and authentic life is kind of nice as well. Um, so your mum is a major figure in the book as well. Did looking at your past relationship with her, I guess, in this time, put it in a new light for you? Absolutely, particularly with the benefit of hindsight. Mm. Um, we've been through a lot since this year. Um, the immediate years that followed after I came out to her um, when I was 15 um, were incredible but also tough we sort of fumbled our way through together yeah um but my mum is my best friend um and I've described this book to a couple of people now as like an unofficial love letter to my mum and it really is it's a tribute to her enormous strength as a mother with all of the other things that were going on in her life um but also as this you know fierce protector of me um even though I was scared to tell her because I was uncertain Mm. yeah she was always going to love me um and I knew that and I know that now um she's just an incredible person and sacrificed so much for me and was always there without question the book paints quite a bad picture of an all-boys catholic high school as this kind of big echo chamber of hyper masculinity and toxic masculinity and how the institution of the school itself kind of supports that yeah what do you think can be done to kind of change the culture that these schools are creating in men oh gosh um yeah it's a a a big question question. uh i'm not sure and i don't think people have figured it out because Mm. i hear stories from in my job as a reporter i do a bit on sort of education and bullying and and particularly youth mental health it's an area of of particular focus for me yeah and i hear stories from boys and girls that go to Um, private schools and particularly religious schools that don't fit into the normal mould of other students or what's expected of students and things are still really tough Mm. and for boys schools in particular um, 
it's not just an issue for gay kids or, yeah. or these days trans kids, but it's the treatment of women and it's the it's the view of the role of, of men in society, even from the really critical perspective of men's mental health. Boys are taught to be stoic and to not show emotion and to never struggle and if they are, to repress it and never speak about it. And we know the consequences of that are significant. Men are two times more likely to take their own life than women. Um, gay kids are six times more likely to attempt suicide than the heterosexual peers. For trans kids, it's almost double that number. So there's still a massive problem in schools. And I, I hope that things have changed since I was at school and in the period of this book, but I kind of worry that they haven't. Yeah. The stats reflect that. And so how we fix that, particularly at a boys' school where... Boys are vulnerable, um, just like girls, maybe a little bit more so um, because of how they're taught to be. I don't, know, I don't know how we fix it. Maybe I think just letting boys know that it's okay to not be okay is a good step and that might break down a lot of barriers to other things like how they treat LGBTQI kids or women and girls, um, how they view their role in society. Well, as you mentioned, Safe Schools was... Um I guess, killed, you could say, yeah. uh, less than three years ago. Do you think that a, a program like Safe Schools would have helped you immensely? Absolutely. Back in that day? I have no doubt in my mind. Um, the really sad thing about that program is that it became so political and so toxic yeah. thanks to a really successful campaign from its opponents, unfortunately, and a huge amount of money thrown at it, particularly from the Christian lobby. Mm. Um, so there was no way it could continue. And the consequences of that are that there are kids without a safety net, yeah. just like I, I didn't have when I was a kid. Um, and the program was none of the things that it was painted to be. It wasn't about, you know, teaching kids, whatever the nonsense was. It was just about explaining to all children that there are different types of people and that it's normal and here are normal representations of them in the real world and there is a big wide real world out there. Uh, and that's that's important for other kids, but it's also important for the kids struggling with issues to know that they're not alone mm. and that the hell that they might be going through is not how it's always going to be. And that's what I struggle with a lot in this book and in this year of my life is the total uncertainty about when this will ever end, if it will ever end. And as someone with, uh, I guess, their finger on the pulse of um, Australian society at the moment, do you think there's a time soon that safe schools could maybe reappear? I think a version of it um, could reappear. And I know that that education departments are focusing on this because they, they saw in its short time the power and the potential of a program like Safe Schools. Yeah. And so they're trying to develop something that's a little bit more formal in the curriculum to address some of these issues. Bullying is, is a serious issue. And as we've spoken about, suicide and suicide attempts are prevalent across a range of population groups um, in youth and particularly vulnerable population groups. So there, I know that there is a focus to do something about that. I just, I hope it's soon because mm. it, it could save lives. It will save lives. I've lived it. As we heard in the intro of the book, uh, you've had a fair amount of homophobic slurs thrown your way in your time. I was curious where you stood on the idea of people reclaiming those slurs and sort of using them against the people that throw them in the first place. It's it's funny um, wh when I recorded the audio version of this book, 
um, I started with the prologue that I just read out mm. at the start of this interview, and that was the first time I'd ever said the F word out loud yeah. in my life. Um, I have no problem with other people using it in a non-malicious sense. It doesn't, it doesn't really bother me. When I hear someone say it with hatred, it, it sort of almost takes me back to that time a little bit. Yeah. Um, I just can't, I can't bring myself to say it out of context of the book. And even then, I still sort of get this chill when I do mm. say it. Um, but uh, on the flip side of that, I know the power in reclaiming um, hateful terminology. Um, it does take the sting out of it. It, it. it spins it on its head a little bit and makes it kind of a positive or, mm. or allows a community to own that previously awful word. Um, so maybe if, if that happens, I won't feel quite as horrible hearing it and saying it. In terms of society attitudes and representation in, in the media, the whole umbrella of everything like that, do you think much has changed for the queer community since you were 14? Um, I think definitely um, in some regards. Mm. And, and I sort of preface my answer by saying, you know, I, I speak as a gay man. Mm. Um, I know that trans people face insurmountable challenges, um, seemingly, um, and, and many different challenges to what I faced. And I can't even begin to imagine what that experience is like. Um, so from a gay man's perspective, representation in the media has changed significantly. Um, I think we saw the fruits of that with the results of the same-sex marriage plebiscite. I never thought I would see that in my lifetime. Even in my early 20s, I probably wouldn't have imagined that day ever coming. Mm. Um, maybe even sort of three or four years before it actually happened, I, I didn't think we were there. Kind of came out of nowhere. Yeah. yeah. Um, and thankfully... Um, wish we didn't need a public vote on it, but that's another story. Yeah. Um, but no, I think I think things are changing, um, but progress, uh, like in many situations, is slow and has been slow. Um, and, and it's also, I don't know, my view of that is judged by or clouded by the fact that, that I live in a city and mm. I live in a suburb that I picked because of how I, I sort of felt it felt. Um, and my social group, I've picked you know I'm not stuck with people like I would be if I lived in a regional area say or, or the sort of town that I grew up in um, or if I was a teenager and I couldn't move somewhere else because I didn't like it you mm. know so I'm very aware that I'm very privileged in my life um, so from my view my little bubble um, things have changed and they continue to change um, but we're, we're far from there. There's a long way to go. Absolutely. Well, to, um, to end the podcast on a bit of a lighter note, as I said, taking place at the turn of the century, the book features a lot of mid to late 90s pop music. <laughs> and so I wanted to ask you, as a connoisseur of 90s pop music yourself, <laughs> if you were to make a playlist of that year in your life, what songs would you put on it? Oh, this was probably the funnest part of the book. And initially I did it as an exercise of kind of memory recall. I listened yeah. to a lot of music from that year and um, all these sort of things came flooding back. Um, the good and the bad. And by bad, I mean like bad hair and bad clothes um, mm. that I wore. Um, but, oh gosh, um, S Club 7 is way up there. Yeah. Uh, a, a perfect illustration of cheesy over sort of produced pop. Um, Steps, another British classic um, pop group. Um, Destiny's Child, 100%. Britney Spears, 
uh, Jennifer Lopez, as we used to refer to her then, pre-J-Lo. Um, so many. Uh, all bad, all cheesy, um, but just you can't help but dance when you hear it. And that's kind of what I did at that age. It was the, that happy music that was a bit of an escape amongst writing and my friends and, mm. and my incredible family, particularly my wonderful mum who used to sing the S Club 7 song. Yeah, that's um, such a bring nice it all back. heartwarming part of the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She described it as my anthem because it's all about never giving up and, and never apologising for who you are, which um, is an important message and was a vital one for me at that age. Well, Shannon, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you.